Monday, November 13th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 138 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? It's episode 138, and I'm delighted to say that uh, episode 138 brings into the uh, little tiny studio at my house composer oboist band leader um and just great dude kyle bruckman san francisco's own kyle bruckman is with us today and it's a good one before we get into it i want to say thanks to everyone who has been contributing to the uh pledge drive that we've been doing for the stone um we're almost there and if you've been thinking about uh kicking in a little something uh go ahead and do it Let's finish it out. Uh, go to the 5049 website. Right on the front page, you'll see a link to the uh, the pledge drive that we've set up. And um, if you love the stone, if you love live music, if you love live music in New York, consider throwing something in. While you're there, um, please have a look at the performance page. I've got a show on December 5th at Roulette in Brooklyn, and this is a big one for me. Uh, this is a piece I wrote for four clarinets and two percussionists. We sort of soft premiered it at the stone um, back in April. We did uh, a more clarified, refined version of it at Firehouse 12 in September. And then this is really going to be sort of like the real performance of the piece. And it's a piece that I'm excited about. It's called Sistema Mundi Totius. It's a piece I want to do more in the future. Um, this, it's, it's a piece that represents a, a, a step forward for me, I think. And I'm really excited about it. So if you're in or around New York City on December 5th, please consider coming to Roulette. I would love to see as many of you as possible. Today on the show, Kyle Bruckman. Um, that music you heard uh, up, up top, that, that solo oboe piece that was sort of uh, uh, multiplying itself exponentially, that's from a record called Gasps and Fissures. Um, some of you who know my music, know my work, know that I put out uh, my first record, um, came out in 2008 on Sodic. It was called In Memory of the Labyrinth System. It was a series of pieces for solo clarinet uh, in sort of a cut and paste fashion. And that record was very much inspired directly by Kyle's record, Gasps and Fissures. Um, when I first heard his record, it's a, it's a record for solo oboe, I, you know, it, it, it completely blew my mind. Um, I, I view it as being, and, and my own record, In Memory of the Labyrinth System, I view them as being part of a, a series of solo records that, that really set out to sort of defy uh, expectations um, from what a solo record for those instruments might be. Music for, you know, which there is very little context. And beyond that solo record, Gaps, Gasps and Fissures, uh, Kyle's done a lot of really interesting stuff. He's covered a lot of ground from his band uh, Rack, which is sort of, you know, um, long-form compositional jazz rock. I, I, it's probably doing a disservice to the music, I'm sure. Uh, to a lot of great electronic music, to collaborations with people in Chicago and the Bay Area. Kyle's got his, his, his feet gra uh, grounded pretty firmly in lots of different worlds, be it classical, improvisational, um, and he's just a nice dude. Uh, every music scene needs more people like Kyle, I think, people who have broad interests, who uh, have a mastery over their instrument and, and keep moving forward, and they present their stuff with quality and, and care. That's certainly who Kyle is. If you want to find out more about Kyle Bruckman, go to kylebruckman.com. Uh, that's Bruckman with two N's at the end, B-R-U-C-K-M-A-N-N.com, kylebruckman.com. Check him out. His world is vast, and there's a lot to dig into. Go to the 5049 website, uh, check out some past episodes, 
maybe pick up a CD or two if that's still a thing that people do. Um, rate, review the show on iTunes, do all that shit. And that's it. Uh, I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Kyle Bruckman. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. It, it was okay. It was a, I, and the the joke was when she she asked us to do this. She's like, "No, no, no, you guys are going to be able to do this, and I'll fill it in with New York players as best I can." And and apparently, like almost well, not everybody said yes, but the irony was that in the end, all the subs for the first incarnation that are on the record got replaced by more California people. So it was the Southern California people who faked out, and like everybody's here from California except for um, except for Faye. For Faye Victor. Right. So all these people and, flew out for the gig. Yeah. Oh, okay. And Aaron Novick. Right. We, we still try to claim him as I mean, he's still a San Franciscan. Ours, as far as we're concerned, yeah. Always, yeah. I mean, always I, will be. So. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely a San Franciscan. <laughs> but, th- you know, it's funny. I just had coffee with Ben this morning. Mm-hmm. And he made some comment. I've heard other people, like, you know, make this comment about there just being no place to play in San Francisco right now. That's that's true. It's I true? Mean, well, it, okay. It depends on what, what sub-scene you're in, like, like anything. And, you know, you try to bridge sub scenes and it gets messier part of uh, there's the center for new music which is a modeled itself initially it was like we're going to be the stone west Mm -hmm. like there was actually a like 30 seconds where they were contemplating calling it the stone yeah yeah i recall that and it's 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 great and i definitely wind up playing there a lot and i wind up referring people to that all the time but it's also you know it's in a part of town that musicians don't live anywhere near it the audiences have not really flocked to it really in the way that we hoped um there's there has you know forever there's been a super robust warehouse scene you know more in the noise free whatever yeah tip in in oakland and i don't know how much the news of the ghost ship fire made it out here it was out here quite a lot yeah. and i was about to ask yeah. how is that that fire impacted it's, what that scene looks it's like it's destroyed it it's completely destroyed it. how so because people are because they're being cracked down on yep. by law people are getting cracked down on people are being more more scared sometimes for very good reasons you know trying to be more careful and actually getting getting the permits and the um i you know i i have to i mean i gotta be straight that i'm a i'm a little a little old and a little out of touch with that scene. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there's still stuff going on, but it just doesn't feel nearly as as exciting and freewheeling as it did even a couple of years ago. Uh, are you from San Francisco? No. No, I um I moved out there in 2003 uh mostly just for family stuff. Yeah. My my parents and my in-laws had both moved to the South Bay. Yeah. And it was my wife and I were kind of like, "Hey, let's we we always dreamed of moving to San Francisco. This I mean, like 2003 is not that long ago, but it's certainly long enough that it's, it's, things are quite different. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Same here. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. And, and it's, you know, when I look back, it's like before that I was in Chicago, and I it was a few years ago now that I realized, oh, shit, I have to stop thinking about myself and referring to myself as a Chicago musician. I've now lived in the Bay longer than I was in Chicago. So, wait, when did you go to – so you grew up where? In Danbury, Connecticut. 
Really? Yeah. That's right by where I went to summer camp. Yeah, I know. It's one town over. I know. Did you go to Bucks Rock? No, I didn't. But, I've, you know, of course, I have the unfair advantage of half the people sitting in this chair of spying on you, listening to you yeah, talk yeah, yeah, to everybody yeah. else. But, so. I mean, I, you know, I went to Bucks Rock, and that was, like, the best part of my life growing yeah, up. And yeah. so many of my friends that I'm still friends with, mm-hmm. you know, were made at Bucks Rock. The closest thing I had to that was... was um, Northeast Music Camp in Ware, Massachusetts, and I think that's where Mary and Peter and all those guys went. Really? Maybe well, the other dude with the the sideways haircut. The year I was there was Matt Moran. Huh. And so you know, like I, you know, I've seen him once in the decades since then, and it was one of those where I had an unfair advantage because I knew he was on the bill, and I just snuck up to the stage and smiled at him. And he's like, "Who the hell are you?" So, really? Yeah. So that was pretty sweet. That's but, so funny. Mm-hmm. Did um. So Danbury, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. My memory of Danbury, Connecticut as a kid, and this uh-huh. is going back 25-some mm-hmm. years now, yeah. is that it was pretty rural. Uh, it was the city to New Milford. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the way I've always kind of... It's like it was the crappiest town in one of the richest counties in the U.S., you know? It's right. Like, that was always... I I, I don't know. I don't know if it's an awesome place to grow up. It seems like it was. Close enough to New York that you have access to stuff. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, now in retrospect, I can look back and kick myself for all the things I didn't Didn't do do because I didn't know. But I, you know. But did did you go into the city as a kid to New York? Yeah, but it was like, you know, then it was to go see industrial shows and, you know, buy scully rings and that kind of thing. That's a perfectly great thing to do in New York. It was, it it did all right. It's not something you can do much anymore. That is true. So you what, I, I assume you're talking about you'd go to St. Mark's Place. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. where one gets those things. Yeah. Exactly. Now you go to St. Mark's Place if you want to go to Chipotle or, <laughs> or I don't know what else. You, know, you want to get like a if you go to like a vape shop. That's where it is. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. Things have changed. So was oboe the first instrument? Organ, actually. Really? And that was just totally random. Those because my um, my parents' college buddies who lived in Long Island um, were a. Um, an organ repairman and organ teacher and we'd have thanksgiving with them every year and and you know when i was six i mean you know keep in mind this was like 70 77 so and what did you get like a lowry or yeah i got a lowry Lowry, and then as soon as it was clear that i was i was serious they got me a mighty Wurlitzer, and it's it's actually still in my studio you still have that Wurlitzer. yeah my parents great instrument it is it's it's in pretty bad shape right now and i i never really do anything with it but i it's just, you know... But whose idea was the world? It. it was just... It found its way to you? Or were you trying I, looking... It, I... It was... I mean, I, okay, the organ lessons were my idea because I just yeah. saw this thing in the corner of, of, of the Eastler's living room. It was like, you know, flashing lights, Leslie and Balsamo yeah, yeah, yeah. beats and everything. It's like, this is this is the best toy I've ever seen. Yeah. And, uh, um, but the, yeah, when the world... I mean, we got it through them. You know, it's like they, right. had, they had a shop. So they're like, oh yeah, we've got a world so you can... And I, you know, I played. But you wanted a Wurlitzer specifically. No, no, I just yeah. wanted a big organ. You know? Yeah, it's like I, I wanted a pipe organ. But you I, mean, know, you I always think about a Wurlitzer as being more like an electric piano than mm-hmm. an organ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get, no. Well, I mean, they're different models. This one was definitely an organ. It was an organ. Yeah, it had the drum beats and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And so that had, why did you go to a double reed <laughs> instrument that is like the biggest pain in the ass to play? Um, uh, that's, you know, we're on the couch already. Huh? Yeah. Um, that's I fourth, fourth grade, you know, I, most, most kids don't, I mean, don't start in a public school. I was lucky that I had a pretty awesome public school band program back when there were still such things. And yeah. because I had some music background, 
the director was like, sure, you can jump straight to this ridiculously hard instrument. And I was definitely a teacher's pet at that point. And I think that was, I think that was the attraction. I was like, oh, it's hard? Oh, I want to play this. Yeah? I wanted bassoon at first, but we couldn't find one. It's like we went to the band store. And the guy, They're not like, cheap instruments, the no. bassoon. No, and, and like there's no such thing as student model bassoons. Right. There's know? not. Right. I mean, those things go for like yeah. like, And, you know, obviously you can make a plastic three-quarter size, and they probably exist now, but they didn't have one in Danbury, Connecticut. So the guy was like, the oboe's closely related. And I said, okay, I'll try. Sure, sure. But Uh, do you, I mean, I always wonder, like, obviously, you know, if you started on the organ, mm -hmm. that's a very, you can look at the notes, they're all laid out in a very logical way. Mm -hmm. I tried playing a bassoon one time. And, you know, I'm a woodwind player, mm-hmm. and it was, like, completely illogical. Yeah. I mean, to, yeah. to the way that I know how to yeah. find pitches and fingerings, yeah. it was. It seemed like a really ass-backwards way to... It, it is. I mean, it's from... I Well, I've never actually picked up a bassoon, but just from, you know, the friends that I work with, it's clear that it's... The, the fingering part of it is way more complicated than the oboe. Yeah. I mean, the oboe is pretty similar to the clarinet similar. in terms of fingering. Yeah, it's it's more similar to saxophone than flutes. Yeah. Just because of the, you know, it's you got... You don't have register keys. You don't go up at 12th. You have octave keys. Right. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, the challenges obviously are in the read and, and mm-hmm. all that control. But at this point, it's like, I think once just for, I just screwing around, I picked up a friend's clarinet and I couldn't, I couldn't get a sound out of it because mm-hmm. I was too used to trying too hard. I was yeah. too used to doing like all this extra crap with the embouchure that, that just, doesn't mesh well yeah yeah yeah. did you um so you took to it immediately yeah i guess (laughs) those double reed instruments they just really sort of like oh they sound revolting at first you know yeah i i teach i teach a lot and it's 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 almost easy like it's very rare that i get a student as young as fourth or fifth grade to start it but it's almost easier to start them with it because the sound is so disgusting yeah it's like someone Up blowing front. their nose or sneezing right. or something. Yeah. But when they're that age, they don't care yet. It's like yeah. when I get an older student who already knows what they think music is supposed to sound like, they get really disheartened because they sound like a, you know, they sound like a skin cat for the first couple of years that they're trying yeah. to, trying to play it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but well, so, ah, because I feel like you, you know, even we were just talking out there for a mm-hmm. second, you know, about Oxbow. <laughs> I mean, have you always enjoyed sort of aggressive confrontational music? I, as of as of adolescence, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I mean, as a kid, I, I dimly remember being like seven years old and like I'm going to start a rock band. Yeah. But you know, it was it was because in in Danbury there there was the the Westcon the Westcon radio station. Yeah. Like college radio was just like got into my ears at exactly the right time. What I, what kind of bands? Uh, I mean, at first it was like you know. It was Depeche Mode, Smith, The Cure, all yeah, that stuff, yeah. and then I started getting into hardcore. You know, there was a big like straight edge scene, like that, New York hardcore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crow Mags. I, I mean, I was always a little scared of that stuff, but I was, you know, flirting with. I, I was, I was deeply into into Minor Threat. And, uh-huh. Do you know, um, you know, Shelter? Yeah, yeah, I mean, not that intimately. Yeah, well, Ray Capo was was like 
from my high school, but he was several Gosh. years older than me. So yeah. it's like I was friends with like the younger sister of people who dated him and members of Youth of Today and stuff uh-huh. like that. So, so there, you know, there were connections there. This would have been what the eighty? Yeah. Well, okay, I was born in seventy one. So, so this would have been like mid 80, to late eighties. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever go down to CBGB? Mm, I I played in the gallery once with a friend's dad's down in the downstairs. Band. Yeah, yeah, in. God, how the hell did I get away with that? That was, yeah, that was in high school. But mostly it was, like, I'd go to the, the Anthrax was the place in Norwalk. That mm-hmm. was, like, where the, you know, where the scary, like, you got to pay careful attention to what color the, the bootlaces the shoe, are. Yeah, you I know. fucking hate that. Uh, yeah. Who did you see there? Uh, I saw 76% Uncertain was, like, a great unsung Connecticut band. Um the first show I tried to go see was the Circle Jerks, and my ride had to go home before they played. That's so awesome. I saw Underdog and like four or five other um, opening bands, but didn't get to see the Circle Jerks. That sucks. Yeah. Did you ever did. get to see them? No, never did. Yeah, the, the 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 bands in Danbury at that time were like No Milk on Tuesday. Uh, yeah, well, you know, and, and uh, actually, I, I wonder where he is now. The Daryl Ort, the guy, like whoever the hell he actually was, I owe him a lot because he had the hardcore show on WXEI on the radio station. Yeah, and like you know, I was there like late on Saturday night with my boombox, like hitting record at the beginning of every song, and if you know, if I liked it, I let it keep recording, and then the next week I, you know it's like can you play another song by but you would call in yeah yeah, like, yeah. You, I, I heard one bad brain song can you like play one other so i can figure out whether or not it's kind of crazy to think about how much distance was between you and the stuff you wanted to access yep. versus yep. like you know how it is now right, but right exactly. I, mean, I used to record um college radio I, like you know this is when you know uh radios and tape players were now mm-hmm. attached and i would record <laughs> uh certain radio programs yeah, yeah. And got to I got I mean a lot of the music that changed my life I got to know through that. Mm-hmm. So I heard exactly. Albert Eiler. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It took me. I mean, it was years before I figured out the free jazz thing. But it was sure. It, yeah. It was like new wave and hardcore, and then very quickly I discovered industrial, and that was like that's where to me that was the thing. Just because like throbbing gristle, or it took a little longer for that. It was more the you know more, Genesis lives a couple buildings over. No shit. Yeah. I, I see Genesis of... almost every <laughs> oh every I, every few days. I see Genesis at like CVS or like oh the post office. It's fucking crazy. That's amazing. Yeah, it, uh, it it took me longer to get to that. It was more it was more like the wax tracks disco shit at that point. Like oh, like early ministry. Yeah, ministry in front two forty two. You got into ministry early ministry. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That's a yeah. I mean, to me, that early ministry was always like. You know, I was already listening to like Psalm 69 and stuff mm-hmm, like that. And mm-hmm. then people were like, hey, have, do you know that it's this other version of ministry? And you listen to it and you're like, this is so whack. Yeah. Yeah. But you, I, I, I yeah, it was just, I don't know, you know, we're, we're all teenagers yeah. in a very particular time and place. Well, and how long did you chase that industrial thing? Because it's industrial, like I was talking uh, yeah. to Th- uh, Thurwell about this. He, he oh calls it the I word. He won't even <laughs> address it by name. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, up through, up through college, like the first couple years at, uh, I was at Rice University in Houston. There's a place there called. Why'd Mom. you go there? Oh boy, um, so many decisions in my life. When I look back, I'm like, how how stupid was that? Wow. Yeah. Um, 
My parents moved to Arlington, Texas, the <sighs> summer before my senior year of high school. Oh. And as only a 17-year-old can, I, I threw a tantrum. I was like, you're ruining my life. I, I mean, know. arguably they were. Yeah, but yeah. The, the devil's bargain was like, you know, some some friends of the family that we'd been tight with forever. It's like their daughter and I met, you know, the families met because their daughter and I were in nursery school together and oh, we wow. like went camping every summer. And so, um, and they were like, well, he can live with us for the year. Like, yeah, I can live with them for the year. They offered you could stay in Connecticut. Yeah. Yeah. And the deal though was that, okay, you can do this, but you got to go to college in Texas. What was the, co- the concept? The concept was, I don't know. I think maybe there were calling my bluff <laughs> and of course i said yes they just wanted me to be closer to home because they were they were moving to texas and okay. they weren't ready to let go just yet i mean normally like that's when you let go it's when the kid goes yeah, to school i i don't know so you I, went to rice was, yeah and see that see that's the joke i feel like such a brat because you know as a spoiled yankee i was like i want to go to brown or say yeah and i uh and rice was friggin amazing but i just hadn't even heard of it yeah, before I, don't, I before I got there, where is it? It's to, in it's in Houston. Yeah, I mean you know it's a real city with real shit, and it's it it likes to, uh, you know, it it's it's very proud of its reputation and for pretty good reasons. You know, mm-hmm. it's like for for many many years they were always like you know skating this like how much can we raise the tuition and still be like voted the best educational bargain in the country is that is that what it is yeah yeah i mean at this point i don't really know i mean it's definitely right 50 larger than it was when we were there but you were in the conservatory uh i it took me in i got there i i started figuring i was going to major in psychology and uh, honestly in large part i was i was down with it because i knew there was a college radio station there and that was Mm -hmm. like you know enough a part of my identity by then that it was you were going to be a DJ? Yeah, yeah. And I was. I wound up being a music director for a couple of years. Uh-huh. And, um, arguably at least as valuable a part of my education, if not more so than the conservatory. Totally. Though we can, you know, we can go down that path later. But the, uh, um, I, and it's like once I got there, it's like within a month or so, I just realized like everything that I care about is completely worthless from a market perspective. So if I'm going to do, you know, if I'm going to take like, bullshit liberal arts courses and diddle around for 40 years i might as well be a musician because mm-hmm. that that at least is social that's at least like you know right stuff that you do with other people and that makes some beauty rather than just books yeah um nothing against books but you know what i mean um i would rather be on stage than have my nose in a in a library for the rest yeah of my life. who wouldn't i mean or i mean so, well obviously than, a lot of people yeah, but yeah. yeah that certainly sounds preferable to me and and so I just I made a nuisance out of myself for the whole year and just bugged the oboe teacher and was like I you know let me into your studio and he finally relented when three or four of his other students had nervous breakdowns and quit at the end of the year so suddenly I was like in this amazing conservatory that became I don't know I mean at at this point it's like the Shepherd School of Music is is if you think you're going to get an orchestra job it's like you you try to you try to go there I mean, and you. And We're I looking just ahead saying orchestra. No, I just tripped into it. Yeah, you know, it's like because I was already at Rice, I was an academic dork, and I had an oboe in my hands. That that I was like, okay, I'll major in music here. And this the school was always pretty awesome, but like l- pretty much over well, not overnight, like over the summer in 1990, they opened a new building. They opened a new building. They got like half the 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 um, 
the real hardcore faculty from Oberlin came and brought all their grad students with them. There was a new conductor that showed up on campus and like suddenly I'm in this place that's this world-class orchestral prep conservatory and I was in way over my head. You know, suddenly I was surrounded by 18-year-olds who, you know, knew exactly which orchestra they wanted to be in mm-hmm. and, you know, highly informed opinions of their favorite interpretations of Brahms' Third Symphony and I was just like... I was a band geek who thought mm. music was cool. You know? Yeah. And Did that fuck you up being around those kinds of people? Uh, it built a lot of character. Self-doubt or character? Both. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm still working on it, but it, yeah. it, it was, I, I definitely locked horns. I mean, my, I have so much to thank my teacher and the, and the orchestra conductor for, but there was a lot of locking of horns while I was there. Uh-huh. And there are a few times that, that I like I remember one conversation in particular it was like why why are you wasting your like why do you keep freaking yourself out doing your your musicology homework don't worry about the term paper they're not going to fail you you just got to go practice your Mozart hmm. and that that was kind of a watershed moment for me when I realized it's like all right maybe I'm not really like full-time orchestral player material you know it's like I I care about too many different things in too many different directions to right. like, to like really put myself in I that mean to box. be in the classical world and any instrument means yeah. that that's what you do eight hours a day. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, that for better or for worse, I feel like the whole thing is blowing up enough right now that a lot more of the resilience and flexibility that I stumbled on very clumsily is now understood to be what you go to a conservatory to get. Uh-huh. You know, but at that point, it was. It was like this railroad. It's like you just... you. You, you practice your excerpts, you practice your Mozart concerto, you get out of school and you live off a credit card until you win an audition. And That's a trajectory that a lot of people do. Yeah, yeah. And, but a lot fewer than 20 years ago. Yeah. Know? And it was it was only when I, after I'd been in Chicago for a few years and I looked around me and realized, I, like, oh my God, there's a whole generation a few years younger than me that were like, well, you just, you get out of school and then you live off your credit card while you wait for your new music ensemble to to get a board of directors. You know? uh-huh. It's like that whole, like, you know, eighth Blackbird ice effect hadn't really, it certainly didn't occur to me, you know, and it wasn't part of like a, my immediate. That stuff role. has popped up like. Yeah. It's I, crazy how much of that stuff there is now. Yeah. And, and, and in a sense, you know, folks in that branch of the music world are just as screwed as everybody else, but they came at it with a different framing. And I, I'm, I feel really blessed that I'm getting to work with some 30-year-olds now who are who are more tapped into that and so I get to do stuff that's actually better integrated between like, you know, my day job mind and my creative music mind than I ever thought was going to happen. But, I mean, was that know? sort of the idea? Was that like, you know, get these orchestral chops and then, you know, your backup plan is still within the same universe? I don't know. I don't know what the hell I was thinking when I was 20. You know, it was it was right. all over the place. I right. I I didn't really start improvising until I got to grad school, and uh, that was a that was in Ann Arbor. That and was based on your interest in improvised music, or th- yeah, yeah, and it, a lot of it. I mean, you know, you, you've you've heard this plenty of times. It was the Zorn Gateway drug. You know, it, was, it really it was, was. Yeah, it was spinning Naked City and Painkiller records as a college radio DJ and thinking like this is this is the punkest shit I've heard yet. Yeah, and then it took me. To my to my shame, like a full three or four years more than that to realize, oh wait, I can I can do this on my oboe. It's not either or, mm-hmm. you know. And that's you know here I am now, <laughs> twenty years on, still trying to 
row that boat upstream. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I talked to Colin Stetson yesterday. Mm -hmm. It's like everyone. We were at Ann Arbor at the same time. Were you really? Yep. I I mean, I was in grad when he was an undergrad, but yeah, all the transmission dudes were, they, they, we were cutting our teeth in the, and then you guys must have been in San Francisco at the same time. Were we? Yeah. He went out there in like 2000 or something. Uh, I didn't. I mean, I saw him out there a couple times. Yeah. but I don't think he, I think he had moved on to Montreal by the time I moved out there. Okay, I think. Okay, yeah. Um. So so I have to imagine in Chicago because so you were <laughs> when did you get there ninety ninety six Chicago was going strong it, in ninety six especially was, it in was that a golden era it really yeah was. that place where like punk yeah. rock and mm-hmm. free jazz and yep. everything was really just like all smashed together yeah yeah and I you know it's like. I, I mean, I, you know, I heard you talk with Ken. It's like I feel like I owe that man my, you know, a child, or you know, it's like. It were was, you around? I mean, who were you? Around I was at? totally. I, I mean, I never, I never actually played with Ken, but you know, why, 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 why would I? You know, uh-huh. it's like the, an oboe doesn't really make that much sense with what he does. But I, I mean, Ken's a very curious musical guy. He, he is. He yeah. is. And we, you know, we we have had a lot of sidemen and and in common but i like i totally see him as a mentor despite never having worked with him just because it was when i got there like the first place i went was straight to the empty bottle because mm-hmm. like even while i was in ann arbor i uh i saw a listing for the for the fnp festival going on in chicago that right. weekend you know and i was like holy shit like you know here are all these people that i've I've heard of. I've been fetishizing over these hard to find, you know, twenty two dollar FMP CDs that you have to like all in one get. place. Yeah. yeah, and and whoa, who's this? There's like this Robbie Hunsaker playing oboe. Huh. Who the hell is that? That this must be some British dude I've never heard of. Uh huh. And then I I moved there and I'm like, oh, Robbie. First of all, it, you know, Robbie's a she and right. she's awesome and she's from Chicago. Yeah. And I, I instantly started playing with her in a double reed trio. Um, and just every, every friggin' night I was either going to free jazz shows at the empty bottle and, or myopic books and, and like, Wicker Park was really happening at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. That like my, you know, the band, um, the lozenge was the, the quote unquote rock band I was in at the time. And we, you know, we played at the lounge acts before it closed. We Who played, was in that band? Uh, the, well, um, Mark Stevens and Philip Montoro, uh, we were, well, we were all friends at Rice. Okay. So we mm-hmm. all met through the radio station there. Uh, Mark Stevens and Philip Montoro were the, were the drummers. Um, Philip is the music editor at the Chicago Reader. If the Chicago Reader still exists, still exists. this week. I thought I, you know, uh, Peter was the, uh, um, uh, well, maybe I got Philip's. Anyway. I, I, yeah. Yeah. No, they, I mean, they're both like, they work together yeah. all the time. I don't know who's where exactly on the on the on the hierarchy right now but um and kurt johnson is a bassist he he showed up on a kind of mid period flying lutenbachers mm-hmm. records because they were in chicago at the time too yep yep there were there was a, a short time when when the lutenbachers practiced in our basement and and it was like the 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 acoustic trio incarnation okay which i'm not that yeah, there's familiar the, with well, the, there's a lot, you know. There's yeah. like pick your pick your era of of weasel, you know. But, right. Um, but yeah, it was really it was kind of it was very heady to be there at that time, and that that was honestly that was why we why we decided to move there after grad school. It's like what's what's a place where we can make noise rock and improvise music and do classical gigging 
and actually afford to live. And at that point, that's that's what it was. That was Chicago. Yeah. So who was so when you got there? Who were the who was around? Who who did you become acquainted with? Well, the I mean the lozenge was kind of in this in this sub scene with like with the Ludenbachers, Bobby Kahn, Cheer Accident are still Cheer. going strong. Yeah. I I love those gentlemen. To uh, uh, there's a band called Herc that. Um, very dear friends of ours and housemates of later on. Uh-huh. It's like, uh, I, I was playing electric accordion in the band. Oh, and so it just like instantly, it was like, oh, okay, you know, we got the novelty act here. We have another goofy hardcore band with an accordion. We'll put you guys on the same band. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we were fast friends and wound up moving it together and all. Uh, but then in terms of free improvisation. In terms of free improv, I was, I was like, you know, going to hear the Vandermark Five all the time. Uh, there was... Okay, yeah, there for a while there was a fifth member of of Lozenge, a dear friend named John Robbins, who actually we found out years later he was also at that same music camp, but he he passed away uh-huh. in two thousand two, was it? Fuck. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's yeah. there's some there's some wounds there, but uh, he was studying. We okay, sorry, John and I were at at Ann Arbor together in grad school. We were like, at that point, the only two grad students in the contemporary improvisation department. Um, and it was kind of funny because neither of us was really a jazz player at all. And within like a couple of years, you know, suddenly the, the department was about, about, yeah, about different things. But, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, there it was like the, the kind of spontaneous music ensemble playbook. And I, uh, all right, how many parentheses have I opened here? Um, so John was he he took up tenor sax while we were at Michigan. He was a violist who had gone to uh, to Iowa City. Yeah, he took up tenor sax and he was taking lessons from Ken. So oh wow, yeah. So through that, I wound up um, I I I improvised most often with Fred Longberg Holm, Jim Baker, uh, Michael's Rang. He's a real Chicago guy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Guillermo Gregorio. I yeah, he's here now. Oh, he is. Yeah, he lives up in the Bronx. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. I just I saw that Andrew Dury's. Yeah, having him. Did you know that that the, there's a soup and sound coming up that Guillermo is going to be there? Really? Yeah. You, you should be sure to go. To yeah, 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 yeah. I should. Um, and uh, yeah, I so you know I would mix it up with those guys as much as I could. Ernst Carroll. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we still actually have a duo project to this day that's more electroacoustic stuff. What's it called? EKG. Yeah, they used to be a trio, didn't it? Mm, we put out one record with Giuseppe Ilassi. Okay, uh, but that was just because we toured together. But right, yeah, that no, that was always a duo project. Okay, so we uh, were you able to start getting orchestral work in Chicago pretty quickly? A little bit. There, it's it's funny now that I look back because that's such a huge part of my work life now in the Bay Area. But at that time. There, there was very little orchestral classical freelancing to do around Chicago, unless you were in the civic orchestra. Mm-hmm. If you're in the Chicago, which was like this, you know, pre-professional training ground. Um, I did. I played. I subbed with the Elgin Symphony sometimes. I, I was sort of a member of the Rockford Symphony for a year, but most of my gigs were like church services and teaching suburban high school students. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I just hammered that hard. By the time I. By the time we moved to the Bay Area, I was teaching 60 students a week, mm. and it was pretty grueling, especially, yeah. you know, after 
playing a noise show and coming home at 2, 3, 3 o'clock in the morning and then getting up at 6 to drive through rush hour to go to Schaumburg, you know. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was, a, it was an intense few years. Yeah, it's a lot it's, of information to deal with. Yes. I mean, yes. just, just, like, I, I feel like so much of uh, free improvisation and devoting oneself to that is like mm-hmm. a real uh, exploration of self. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how yeah, you yeah, yeah. relate to other people. And yep. if you take that seriously, it's enough to mm-hmm. deal with for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you start, you know, everyone who I know who's a free improviser, for the most part, has to do other things musically as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. Whether that's, you know. Yes. Or, and usually it's because they want to. Right. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's not like they're, you know, it's putting a gun to their head. Mm-hmm. But just, I mean, dealing with classical repertoire, like, that yeah. is enough. Yeah. More than enough to keep you, you know, you could just do that and never get to the bottom of it. Yeah. And I, you know, the, there are plenty who would say that I should have done that and I, yeah. I fell off that train at some point. But Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's really clear to me now that that's, that being an improviser and starting to improvise and getting into that world makes me a better classical player now than... How so? I, well, it, it helped me get over a crippling perfectionism, for one thing. Yeah. I was just scared to death, you know, and had been so beaten by the by the conservatory mindset that I, you know, had forgotten why I loved music, you know. Right. And actually having a creative investment in the recreation of something that's already been perfected by your teacher's teachers, you know, it's like if you go in with that attitude, it's it's it becomes like I don't know, it's I, I was I was getting to the point where I felt like, you know, classical playing was how is and this is not to diss like plumbers, but how is this different from being a right. plumber? You know, it's like yeah, yeah. I have a very specific job and I just go in and I do that job without fucking up. And it's different in that if you're working with a craft that you are working with physical materials mm-hmm. in your hands, yeah. you know, obviously you over time you dedicate yourself to your craft, you get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A plumber, for instance, mm-hmm. most I can't. Im- there's, you know, virtuosity isn't a conversation yeah. that I imagine happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you, what what perfection looks like is physically what it looks like. Music right. is such a more esoteric thing, right. and you know, you know that if you stay out drinking and smoking all night mm-hmm. before the gig, yeah, you're not going to have a good gig. Right. You right. will not have That's a good true. gig. That's true. Uh, and you are attempting to present something as perfectly as possible that. Yeah literally disappears the second it happens yeah 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 but i it, on it was it was the fact that it was when i started to improvise that i was able to get back to that yeah i was in danger of losing it it's yeah like, oh, all this about is just getting it right and if i don't get it right i'm fired you know right and then i was able to remember that there's something much more to it than just getting it right mm-hmm. so now I'm i'm able to bring that to classical playing. I mean, what it does mean that the the dark side of it is that like now I realize that the people that actually win auditions to get full time orchestra jobs, that does require the hundred percent commitment. Yeah, and you know, I just like I'm I'm not I'm not that guy. You know? I mean, the classical repertoire that you find yourself working with most often, or you know, mm-hmm. within an ensemble, is it stuff that you would enjoy listening to if you weren't working, or is it? Uh, I mean, how 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 contemporary is the stuff that you're playing? Well, uh, more and more these days, I'm getting to do more stuff that is, you know, contemporary composition. Yeah, and that's more in like the chamber music world, and uh, the orchestral gigs are usually pretty pretty not very daring. 
and that's just because of the 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 weight of the institution you know mm-hmm. it's a it's a lumbering beast that has to please way too many people way too many stakeholders way too many donors mm-hmm. way too many scared administrators mm-hmm. um and you know i playing the war horses of the repertoire i mean there i i do have numinous nights on stage and i talk still but not as not as many yeah as i do when i'm you know on stage with rack or you know meeting somebody the first time in in my friend's living room you know yeah yeah um it's uh yeah it's 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 weird it's real it's very it's gratifying but really disorienting to try to always be active on all points of the continuum. You know? Yeah. I mean, the yeah. best case scenario, I was just having, actually had breakfast with Zorn today oh, and we were talking about this thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, I was telling him that like, and you can see this in lots of different people, like his his output is more compelling because of all the differences. Yep. Like the, the yep. solo saxophone concerts are more interesting, more compelling because right. of the string quartets, right. which are more interesting, more compelling yes. because of Masada, which is yeah. more interesting because, you know, mm-hmm. all the stuff. Or yeah. If you look at someone like Peter Evans, who mm-hmm. I think, you know, arguably might be the best trumpet player alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, if he's not, he's certainly <laughs> on a short list, yeah. uh-huh. you know. Uh, his free improvisation is so informed by what he does in the classical world. Right. In the classical right. world, he's, you know, like a first-rate mm-hmm. interpreter of contemporary music. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's like this really beautiful to me. Like I love hearing his playing because there's all that clarity there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, do you are you around classical musicians that enjoy yeah. improvising? Only, only now. Only yeah. now, like at the be kind of the beginning of my career. I mean, I do feel like there's been kind of a very gradual shift, like within just the past you know half generation and so now like splinter splinter reads is i think the coolest thing that i've got going in terms of classical playing right now so who's in the group dana jessen the bassoonist who founded it um david vegahaupt saxophone bill kalinkos on clarinet jeff anderley bass clarinet all san francisco people no they well sorry that book everything well we we tried for a minute it started to be a san francisco group because dana had moved there and then she got a and then her husband got a job in Oberlin, so uh-huh. they they wound up. Yeah, we are we're spread all over right now. But like every one of those guys is a is a new music ninja in their own little in their own specific slice, and they're all like you know they're all younger enough than me that I'm able to look at them and say like this is amazing. Something yeah. changed. Yeah, yeah. While I was flailing. You know, for a few years out of school, it's like there was like there was a seismic shift in the approach. <laughs> among classically trained musicians. You're going to be seeing that more and more. I know. And it's awesome. It's incredibly encouraging. It's the best. It's one of those things. It's like when, you know, you talk to people of a certain age mm-hmm. or various ages, like for me to have it taken almost 20 years to really comfortably see yeah. where the clarinet, yeah. you know, can sit comfortably with aggressive music and uh-huh. free improvisation and, and really, you know, like people are, 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 building those bridges mm-hmm. as soon as they take an interest in music now. Right. They, right. They, there is that process, like, yeah. and it's amazing. Yeah. I, I, env- I envy them. Yeah. I feel and, like people are getting places quicker because the world is so much more intermingled. Yeah. If there's anything I feel self-conscious about is like hearing myself mule about things that were my battles that I realized, like, maybe that maybe that's moot now. Maybe it's not a battle anymore. It's not moot. I mean... I don't know what that looks like in other fields or in yeah. other walks of life. Like, I know what I know because 
I know what I know, you know, yeah. but I mean, for creative people in general, you know, that's sort of, I mean, that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to try and draw too many comparisons, but so you, you felt good in Chicago. I did. It's a good place. It's a, it was a Still great a place. Good place. It, yeah. I mean, the scene is totally different now than it was 10 years ago. How so? It's, uh, I mean, when I, when I go back, well, okay. I, I gotta be clear that I'm not 30 anymore. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, I'm in a totally different place yeah. in my life. So when I, when I go back, it's like my friends from that era are also in different places of their life. Right. I feel like they, they're, they're, at least from what I could see, there was a little bit less. Okay, like in the late '90s, there was just this really incredible overlap between. It was just a given that like you were gonna be in a post rock band and an electroacoustic noise band and a free jazz. You know, it's like th- this. It was everybody was was intermingling, mm-hmm. and I feel like after I left, there was a little bit more like oh, no, 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 we're gonna we're gonna do a free jazz thing. Uh, and no, 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 we're going to have a little like free improv thing over here. And I feel like things got a little bit more balkanized and a little bit more. Um, it's like as soon as there's something to lose, as soon as there's something to, you know, at stake, then like people who have fought their butts off to, to establish something, then want to defend it. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that's awesome. But it's also, I, when I go back, it's like, okay, I'm really lucky that I get to play at a place like Constellation because. Mm-hmm. I was there at that time when all this stuff was being put in place, you know? Wait, you're when, saying like, they... that scene was building. It's like, because I, I was part of, you know, I was around while that shit was all coming together mm-hmm. that I, I almost feel guilty that I can swoop back in. It's like, okay, guys, I'm back. I'm ready to play now. Well, you know? um, wait, but you feel guilty because you fucking made your bones? <laughs> I, uh, okay, but... I get pissed off when Mm -hmm. I realize that I've made certain bones Mm -hmm. and then like certain uh, opportunities are a little more difficult than they should be, to be honest with you. Well, okay. What I mean was like when I was there, I was, I was making my own bones though, but I was making my own bones within a structure that was in place because Ken and Jeb and Fred and, and Michael's rang and John Corbett were like making this thing happen. Yeah. And that was like, that was my, that was my free postdoc is that I was just there for that. And I benefited from that. I never did any curating. I never oh, did, I you know, it's like, and that, that that's all I'm saying is that like, right. I, you know, was, I was able to ride this wave of this amazing time and then when it came time for the players who were younger than Ken and Jeb to actually step up and take over, which they have, yeah, that's when I left town. So like that's what I mean. It's like when I come back, it's like oh shit, I you know it's yeah, it's kind of it's a it's little like too you got easy. Your, it's you know I mean we don't have formalized uh, checks and balances in <laughs> right. the underground music right. world, but you right. know you kind of got your union card then, mm-hmm. and it's still valid. Yeah, yeah, that's the way I see it. Yeah, I mean you know you're 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 still bringing uh, a certain level of musicianship. And that's first and foremost. If you know you, you know, were just turned into some fucking drunk who never practiced, <laughs> you probably wouldn't get the gig. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> but th- but the other thing is, I don't know. This is a conversation I've been having with a few people lately. Is like uh, when the rains kind of go from 
from uh, a certain era of people who have built a certain thing and other people need it's really important that people be aware of that that yeah. it's a very um it's not an esoteric thing it's not yeah. an abstract idea it's very real I, i'm not going to say any names in what i'm about to say but <laughs> i know certain people uh of an older generation who are getting yeah. very frustrated with people from a younger generation for not standing up for certain levels of treatment and compensation for work mm. that these people like fought tooth yeah. and nail to establish. Yeah. 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 That's a, that is a hard, that is a hard territory to navigate. Yeah. It's not quite the same thing as what you're talking about, but no, it's, but it's it, related. It is, it is rela- and it's, you know, and it's related to so much else of what's, a mess now that like when you know you get younger players who just assume they're never ever going to make a red cent off of recording you know? right and then you've got these older cats that are like oh okay but you know <laughs> yeah. but where's my advance where's it's like <sighs> yeah i mean recordings are one thing yeah. or you know fees for her concerts mm-hmm. yeah. um yeah. I, it's i don't know i don't know we uh, <laughs> yeah so you maintain a tie to Chicago. <laughs> I do. I yeah. Do. Uh, yeah. And it was, for the longest time, was mostly in the form of Rack, which was the group that I started right before I left. Yeah. And I, the first few years I was in the Bay Area, I would keep flying back a couple times a year to, and I'd keep writing for those guys. And So you I, moved to the Bay in 2003. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when I think about that time period, yeah. even though it was after 9-11, it... Shortly after nine yeah, eleven, yeah, it, I, I don't think any of us yet saw coming. No, what was going to come? Yeah, no, no, we didn't. Uh, That's it, in a myriad of ways, whether yeah. you know it globally or yeah. just from our you know small mm-hmm. perspective of like, yeah, the infrastructure of music's going to kind of yeah disappear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what did you? Feel, you got to San Francisco. What did you look around and say? Ah, this is what I'm coming into. Uh, well, okay. My, my sister had lived in Oakland for a few years before that. So I had already made some contacts with some of the improvisers out yeah. there visiting her. Scott Rosenberg. Yeah. He, he, player. Yeah. He was, he was in Chicago. F- we overlapped in Chicago for a while. And so he was able to introduce me to a bunch of the amazing improvisers. Wait, does there. he host a podcast? He does. But it, it, it's, he goes under a different name? Scott Pink Mountain. Yeah. Is that something we can talk about? Like, yeah. Yeah. But wait, sure. no, just, I mean, like what's the distinction between scott rosenberg and scott pink mountain are you at liberty to speak about this i i i'm sure i am as like i don't entirely understand you'd have to ask him it's like uh the we we had a we had this ridiculous amazing rock band of like a who's who of who gives a fucks who uh called pink mountain and we named it pink mountain because we were sitting around we're like what are we going to do with this and somehow we Got into English translations of last names, and we all cracked up. And Pink Mountain, Pink Mountain, Scott Rosenberg. So. Wait, those two things mean the same thing? Yeah, yeah, Pink Mountain. That makes sense. Rosenberg, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, but then like he kind of took that on. It's like, oh yeah, I'm Scott Pink Mountain, and then he started doing kind of singer songwritery stuff under that name, which was, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's awesome because we sure. we were being smart asses as it was calling the band Pink Mountain right when. Pink Mountain Tops and Black Mountain were like actually a thing in yeah. the indie rock world. I mean, Pink Mountain's know? a cool name. Yeah, well, you know, we... he, he's Jewish, right? Yeah, you're Jewish? Yeah. No, okay. It's two ends, right? It's, that's that's why I wasn't. It, it gets left off a lot of a lot of album covers sure. and such. But you know, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, so you knew these people out there? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I was able to. I 
again, I was very lucky to get to kind of slip right into the, you know, the old boy network of improvisers out there. I should also mention that, like, in addition to the, like, this is my own creation myth I've told too many times, but, like, another big reason why I improvise is because the radio station where I worked in Houston hosted a concert my junior year where uh, Rova Mm -hmm. and Tim Burton, Hank Roberts, Debris... And Splatter Trio all came to Houston. Splatter Trio was this band. Well, it was just in one night? Yeah. Well, Fuck. two nights. They had okay. this two-night festival. And um, Splatter Trio was, I mean, they're not active anymore. It was Gino Robert, Miles Boys, and Dave Barrett. So all San Francisco people, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not sure where Dave Barrett is now, but Miles, right. like, you know, I, I work with Gino and Miles all the time. And they're, and, you know, it's because I saw them when I was 20 and, that, yeah. that I kind of started doing that. So it was kind of awesome to already have those connections. Now, you know, now I get to get to be a colleague of these guys. So mm-hmm. I, I had some of that already in place when I got to San Francisco. Um, and yeah, it was like at, you know, in at that time, it was going through its waves like every place always is of, oh, venues are closing. Oh, we have to find this other crappy venue. Oh, there's no money. But... Mm-hmm. But the, the, it was, it's, as long as I've been there, it's always been a very welcoming and friendly place to, well, let's just play a free improv gig. It -hmm. doesn't matter if anybody's here or not. We're just going to do it. Mm -hmm. And maybe it'll be a house concert. But, you know, so that, that scene was, there was a club called, um, uh, 21 Grand. Yeah. That was in Oakland. Yep. It's not there anymore. No, it's not. That was kind of like the main place. It was. And I, I played there a shitload my first few years in town, and, and then it got shut down by, by the city, you know, by some desk right across the <laughs> the next cubicle from a desk that was funding it, you know. Yeah. That's, the, that's how these things work. But, right. Um, yeah. So that, that was a big part of my, my kind of entree into the Bay Area. Do you and, love San Francisco? Uh... San Francisco itself? I mean, I, 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 this just occurred to me, and I haven't really. I mean, I love my city that I yeah. live in. I love my city. I have a very deep connection with mm-hmm. various aspects of the city, yeah. various neighborhoods, various places, and what the his, history of those places is, are. And when I was walking, I went to San Francisco for the first time last year. Yeah. I've been obsessed with San Francisco mm-hmm. cinema since I was a teenager. Oh, yeah, of course. It's and, the myth, you know? Well, and, but I did not feel, I mean, I know that it's changed. Yeah. And I know a lot of people are, yeah. are heartbroken by yeah. a lot of the change, and yeah. I understand that. But I still, like, I mean, I was eating lunch um, at Swan Oyster Depot, mm-hmm. and Mark Kozelik came walking in, and I was, I was having the greatest meal of my life, and yeah. I was like, holy shit, like, I'm definitely in San Francisco. <laughs> and I went to City Lights afterwards, uh-huh. and uh-huh. I, I definitely felt, like, the ghosts of SF. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I, so I just, I guess what I'm saying is, I can't imagine living a place that I didn't love. Yeah. Uh, that's good to hear, because it's, it's easy to lose sight of whatever's right under your nose, you know? And yeah. we, we, we left San Francisco for the East Bay 10 years ago now. Um, and I, you know, I still go back all the time for, for gigs and for fun and, but it's, yeah, I, of course. I mean, the myths are all still there, but mm-hmm. so fewer and fewer of them are in the parts of town that I wind up going to, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's like I never, I never, I'm never in North Beach, you know. Right. And, you know, it's like that stuff is um, like the Sutro baths, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> I, you know, it's it's the there's been such a weird 
hostile takeover of tech money and the, and yeah. it's just it's too it's too easy to whine about it because you know we're gentrifying our own goddamn neighborhood yeah you know, just by being who we are where we are yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I love the Bay Area. There's a lot about it that I that I love, and then mm-hmm. there's you know every once in a while my wife and I are like, man, why are we do we do we have to hustle this much? Did we consciously choose to a lot of hustle, hustle this much for you know? Yeah, sure. We got organic produce. You know, different farmers market six days of the week. We can bike there. We can bike everywhere. Our daughter's got an amazing public school education a few blocks from our house. You know, it's that's like good. there's so much that's so beautiful. Yeah, about yeah. yeah. It. But it's also it's it's weird. It's it's a funny place, and yeah, I don't know. I I I, I can't imagine us going anywhere else at this point, just right? Because we're so you said old, you're yeah. right? Yeah. But do it. That is a good question. Do I love San Francisco? I don't know. I definitely loved the myth of San Francisco when I moved there. Yeah, that was for sure. You know, but I also love the myth of Chicago when I got there. You know, I mean, Chicago. Was, I feel like has done a is. I mean, I'm sure people in Chicago would. I'm, there, there's a good possibility I'm completely off base, but like mm-hmm. I feel like Chicago's doing a better job than most cities at maintaining mm-hmm. some of its real essence. That's even that's probably here, true. you know, yeah. like these fucking buildings that are popping yeah. up. Like yeah. they're, they're they're built, like you know, these like these are sacred spaces, mm-hmm. and they're just knocking them down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chicago seems like it's. I mean, do you go back there a lot? I at least at least once a year or yeah. so. Um, I mean, it's you know we've we've got a nine year old now, so it's like life is definitely in a different pattern sure. than it was but yeah i mean we still like some of our closest friends in the world are still there mm-hmm. um i i go back for for friends more than music these days um but yeah there's still a lot there's still a lot to recommend that place mm-hmm. i don't know i i wish everybody would move to oakland then I, maybe i'd like it more yeah you know? but they're all moving out here <laughs> right exactly or down to la that's the thing so I never do you saw go down there when did LA become better yeah, than SF? Exactly. It has. Exactly. That's, it's see, crazy. that's what I'm talking about. That something really weird has been going on. But yeah, do you go down there a lot? Uh, more in the last couple of years than in like the previous decade that I lived there. Sure. You know, and it's just just because suddenly it's like, oh, there have been a, a few random gig opportunities. Yeah, I love um, Los Angeles. I I never expected to, but I, I, I used to I'm hate totally it. Sold I used to I'm despise it. I used to have nothing but contempt yeah. for the city of Los Angeles. Yeah, and I really dig it now. Yeah, wouldn't want to live there. I you know, I yeah I don't I I don't think I would either. But I've seen more and more people like flee San Francisco to head down there. And yeah. It's, I, it, part of what what's so difficult about being on the West Coast, just from a touring perspective, is like that's so it. far away. That's yeah. it. You go to L.A., you go to you go to Portland and Seattle. Yeah. that's all that anybody has ever managed to to carve out. You know? Yeah, like there'll be a month where oh, so and so has this series at you know in Bakersfield or you know, but it, nothing ever seems to last. I, I want to ask you about this record that uh-huh. gasps and fissures. Yeah. Oh man old school it's old school but i heard that record that record actually had a really big impact on me and was like one of a handful of records i was looking at when i made my first solo record shit can can you tell me about that record yeah um it's it's uh, yeah well thanks yeah (laughs) thanks uh, no it's funny because it really like if i try to like you know what 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 what's my you know, indispensable discography. I mean, that was that was a super important record for me when I made it. Yeah, because I had kind of done the 
the stuff I thought I was supposed to do within the first couple of years of being in Chicago. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, so you make a you make a solo free improv record, and then you make an album of duos with a bunch of different people to prove mm-hmm. it. And I and I did exactly that right. in that order. And then I was like, wait a minute, I what's the stuff that's like I, I was still kind of new to the world of improvised music, but I realized it's like, but what has always really mattered to be more is these awkward spaces between genres and like, you know, I, I, I really want improv to be not a genre, but a, but a, but a technology, right? It's like, yeah. it's a tool that I use to, and I, the, the crazy idea was I, I was starting to work a lot with Olivia Block at that time uh-huh. and uh, EKG had just gotten started as well. And I was thinking back to like, you know, what's, what's the shit that really, really turned me on to experimental music in the first place. And a lot of it was my, my, my dear friend, Keith Rosendahl, like he and I were the uh, co-music directors at, at the radio station in Houston for a couple of years. And he, he had the show called the genetic memory show that he inherited from, uh, from some other DJs who were like Austin Caustic and, and Bonnie, what was Bonnie's last name? She was in a band called voice of I. Hmm. It's all, train spotting stuff that'll matter to maybe maybe one and a half people who actually hear this but uh um but the uh i the the silly idea for me was like i want to make a genetic memory record i want to make something that genetic memory that was just the name of the show that mostly trafficked in like post-industrial psychedelic electronic music Uh uh-huh shit like nurse with wound and right and you know coil and and I, you know, I was like, "What if I tried to make a Nurse with Wound record just just with my oboe? How how messed up would that be?" Mm-hmm. And that was that was the spark. That initial idea was like, "Okay, all this like amazing sound art, concrete, whatever that Olivia is doing so beautifully, can I do that by myself?" Mm-hmm. And then I actually the the first the beginnings of that were stuff that she helped me record at her house actually, and then I used that as a demo to apply for a residency at ESS, Experimental Sound Studios. Yeah, I just yeah, did a show there a few months yeah, ago. Yeah, they're, they're still going. They're still it's going a strong. beautiful force for good. And I and I got a basically 40 free hours of studio time with an engineer. And I, you know, I had like, it's not like Pro Tools was new then. Right. But it was totally unknown territory to me. Uh-huh. So it was just, I was just, you know, kid in a candy shop. It was like, I would, I would just do some crazy close mic stuff. Uh-huh. And, with the oboe and I had a couple of vague ideas of where, where to take this stuff. And then I would just go back into the booth and I was like, okay, put it, put on another layer, but layer again, but let's keep going. What, what happens if we get like 144 of that note, you know? Yeah. And that's, that was, that was how that album developed. And there's like lots of micro editing. Uh, not that there was some, but there wasn't, a lot. There are a couple tracks that was a lot of micro editing, and most of it was just like I just set silly rules for myself. It's like well, I want to make. Rules? It's like I want to make a concrete record where I don't do any processing, where everything is like how much of the of the like improv purist methodology can I bring into this? Like how far can I go with that before I feel like I have to subvert it? Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff that sounds the most concrete and most cut up was just because I was just using the top joint of the oboe with two mics like an inch away from the tone mm-hmm. holes and then hard panning those. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like there are a couple superimposed layers of that. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted it to be as organic and as acoustic in origin as possible. Mm-hmm. So there's, I in the end I cheated and I like dropped like one track down an octave. But sure. you know, other than that, there's no, there's no reverb. There's no, no other 
processing of any kind. It's all just proximity effects and layering. And so when you – did you – I mean it's, it's weird to say this, but mm-hmm. when you did you look at doing solo concerts to sort of replicate that? Not until later. And I, I have to thank my dear friend Matt Ingalls for that. It's mm-hmm. like when, when I moved – Clarinetist. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that was like – uh, yeah, I should have mentioned. That's really what I should have mentioned when you know what happened when I got to the Bay Area. I fell in with the improv community, but there was Matt had started a couple years earlier SF Sound, uh-huh. which is this you know ornery collective of composer performers. That's I you know I kind of see like Wet Ink as as a sister city kind of organization, mm-hmm. but you know because we were in the Bay Area and Wet Ink was here, somehow we we um, we had a a little bit more self-sabotage than, than Wet Ink has, what do you mean? has manifested. Just isolated out in the West? Yeah, and more of a refusal to, like, play the, you know, the granting and the arts administration game that... Oh, that's the name of that game. I know. And we we have only done that kind of grudgingly and halfway. So, you know, we've gotten some grants, we've gotten some amazing opportunities, but a lot of it was like, no, we just kind of want to act like a punk band that plays... Stockhausen and Zanakis and each other's compositions. Right. Which was has been incredibly cool and incredibly gratifying. But now that like most of the founders of the ensemble have gotten teaching jobs and moved elsewhere, mm-hmm. and those of us who remain like, you know, kind of the last of the inner sanctum is about to have a kid and now we're all parents, so it's like things are kind of dissipating a little sure. bit. Sure. Anyway, it was Matt who said it's like that's a solo piece. You need to perform that. Yeah. And and I yeah I thank him for that. So how, what was the approach to the solo concert? Uh, was to, the, to replicate the parts of it that that made sense technologically to do the like the super close miking and then to get some backing tracks that were open ended enough that I, I wasn't totally cheating and playing a tape piece. Mm-hmm. You know that there were things that I could trigger at certain points. So it just you know you became, were triggering things. In so far as. Uh, I mean, now, of course, I haven't played that piece live for years. If I did it now, I would, you know, do it for real with a foot pedal and such. But at yeah. that point, it was just like telling the sound man, it's like, when I, you know, when I wink at you, start track number three. Really? Yeah, it was that that janky. Really. Man. Yeah. But, that you know, that was, I've I've done more of that kind of work more recently. But that was kind of the first time it was like, oh, wait a minute, there's like, there, there, there's something to this world of live performance of solo electric acoustic. Yeah composition yeah 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 Yeah, it's exciting um yeah yeah, i still use pedals i was at a gig Mm -hmm. the other night using some pedals yeah and there was this other guy playing who had this crazy setup Mm -hmm. of triggers hooked up to his guitar yeah making sounds that i had never heard before yeah and it was the first moment i was like maybe i need to begin looking at if i'm going to continue like augmenting my live sound maybe it's time (laughs) to look at you know something more advanced than yeah. pedals that I buy at Guitar Center. I, well, you know, there's there's a there's a there's a there's a romance to that too. You yeah, know? it's like that's it's like when EKG got started. This was like right when all these kind of lowercase improvisers were first starting to play free improv shows with with MacBooks. Yeah, and we're like, fuck no, we're going to use modular analog synthesis. And you and know, you still have that sort of like. That feeling that's it's like sweat equity versus I yeah, partially, but I I also it's just I I always find it creatively productive to have some handicap, just some ridiculous self-imposed yeah. handicap, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. It's like I'm going to do this wrong because I trust that it's going to get me somewhere more interesting than if I like. That's you know, a really important thing. Yeah. 
That's a really yeah. important thing. I, I was, you know, I, one time my friend was trying to show me Max MSP. Mm-hmm. And it took me 30 seconds to say, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, I can listen to Ikue yeah. Mori, who uses yeah. Max MSP. She is yeah. the master of mm-hmm. master electronic improvisers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so happy she's on this planet and doing mm-hmm. what she does. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to look at a blank computer screen. Right. And, and you know, I'd rather turn a microphone on yeah. and turn the volume all the way up and then begin to work, <laughs> figure out a way to, like, yeah. tame the feedback or yeah. make music with the feedback yeah. than, than, you know, look yeah. at ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, you know, I got enough shit yeah. in my yeah. brain and in my heart that I mm-hmm. have to deal with. Yeah. You know, I and I think that's awesome. I think, like, we all just... we just draw our own line in the sound of where we're going to get Amish or whatever. You know, yeah. it's like, I, the, there's a, one of the most, I, I think one of the real treasures in the Bay area is Tim Perkis, this guy who was yeah. supposed to be part of the roulette gig, but he, there was some health things that suddenly he couldn't come on the Tim road. Perkis, yeah. yeah. But he's, you know, it's like, this is a guy that he improvises live electronics in the most liquid, responsive, beautiful musical way with this friggin' little, you know, laptop from, you know, I don't know how old it is. And it's just, it's it's his own code. You know, there's yeah. nothing state-of-the-art about it. It's just, it's a, it's a machine language that he developed however many years ago, and it's his instrument. And, right. it, like, he does, it's not a concern that, like, no, I need to update, I need to get the newest toy. It's like, no, that's his, that's his, that's, that's... That's his his sack butt, you know. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And he it's just, his Mark Six, right? And he, right. And he plays the hell out of it. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Technology yeah. doesn't always um, always age very well in terms of yeah aesthetics and yeah. listening. I mean, it certainly. I feel like and maybe I'm way wrong, but like we, there's no reason ever again, in my opinion, mm-hmm. going forward from this day forward, that anyone should ever look back at a high school photo and be like, man, why was I, you know, like there should be no more regrettable choices. We have enough hindsight and foresight to know what things look like and will look like. Same with like sound. Like if you, if you listen yeah. to like Pierre Henri, you're yeah. like, these sounds are fucking solid. They're yeah. amazing. Yeah. And then if you listen to certain electronic music from like the eighties, you're like, yeah. those sounds are terrible. Yeah. You know, like we, sh- there's no longer uh, yeah. an excuse for like poor aesthetic choices. I, yeah, I mean, I, on one level, I agree, and another, it's like I, I'm feeling like enough of a curmudgeon that I keep being brought up short. That like, oh my god, there's an like, wait, when did the kids decide that like new age was noise music again? You know, it's like I keep seeing things that I'd written off aesthetically, right. I mean, yeah, getting it, revived and re re um, repurposed. You know, so and that's I, I like that. You know, when I was quite honestly like there was a lot of music in the 80s that i fucking hated i'm yeah. talking about, i mean i was a little kid in the 80s yeah, you know yeah. but like certain synth sounds yeah. that but now i hear them and what people are how are, are reintroducing them into these like you know metal contexts or whatever and I think it's amazing you know <laughs> yeah but yeah. there's you know I'll, I'll show you a piece of music when we wrap up here that okay. has not aged well <laughs> exhibit a yeah well i appreciate you talking man it's been yeah, fun yeah, definitely thanks, thanks man thanks for having me okay that was Kyle Bruckman. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. He's a good dude, and that was a good talk. Go to kylebruckman.com. That's Bruckman with two N's. Check him out. Uh, maybe check out one of his shows. Pick up some of his albums. Great shit. kylebruckman.com. Go to the 5049 website, 5049records.com. Uh, check out the Patreon. Check out the, uh, the Stone Pledge Drive. Do all that. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review it in iTunes. That's it. 
We'll talk to you next week. Be excellent to each other. <laughs>